engine light on? Take the guesswork out of your check engine light with O'Reilly Veriscan. It's free and provides a report with solutions based on over 650 million vehicle scans verified by ASE certified master technicians. And if you need help, we can recommend a shop for you. Ask for O'Reilly Veriscan today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 226. And today in the show, I'm joined by Brad Ferris, a Mississippi bow hunter, a member of the Primos hunting team, and a Whitetail Properties land specialist. All right, before we get into the show, we need to thank Lacrosse Boots for their support of this episode of the podcast. And Lacrosse is an easy company for me to talk about here on the podcast because I've personally been using their product for coming up on two decades now. So, you know, it's, just, it's not a stretch at all for me to recommend them to you. I actually remember my Uncle Bill was the first one to show up at our family deer camp wearing his uh, green and yellow lacrosse rubber boots. And after seeing them and him telling us how much he liked them, you know, my dad and I soon went out and got our own for that next season. So ever since then, I've been using various models that they put out. Um, most recently, I've been wearing their Arrowhead boots, and this year I'll be trying their new Alpha Burley Pros. So I'll keep you all posted on what I think about the new pair, but based on all my past experiences, I'm confident that just like all those previous models, these are going to be fully waterproof. They're going to be warm. They're going to be comfortable hike around in and all of that with the added benefit of being pretty darn scent free, given that rubber outer construction. So I'm excited about that. And if you'd like to learn more about lacrosse for yourself, you can visit lacrossefootwear.com. And now welcome to the Wired Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx and Today in the show, I'm joined by Brad Ferris, and I think for a lot of folks, Brad's a household name in the hunting world because of his long-running work with Primos. He's been a consistent face there on their TV shows and videos for many years now, and that's something that Brad does continue to do today, but he's also a Whitetail Properties land specialist and a Level 2 QDMA deer steward, which uh, which is a certification program that the Quality Deer Management Association runs, which basically it means that if you've made it to level two, you've been through one of the most comprehensive whitetail biology and management programs available. So I say all this just to make sure it's clear that what we've got here is a tremendous resource. Brad is, is a wealth of information. 
And I was excited to have him on the show, not because of just all that, but also because he hails from the South. And as I've freely admitted in the past, and as some of you have uh, you've made sure that I don't forget, I've not always done a good job of featuring guests from that part of the country. So I'm glad that at least for this week I can write that wrong. And now, after speaking with Brad, I'm even more excited about it because, you know, he's just a genuinely interesting person and, and generous guy with his insight and excitement and passion about white-tailed deer. So in this one, we chat with Brad a bit about his background growing up hunting in Mississippi and what that tradition is like down there. Uh, We talk through some of the different ways that hunting deer in the South can be uniquely challenging uh, and different ways to address those challenges. We talk through things like hunting clubs, um, sharing or buying property with a group of people, sharing property with friends, that kind of stuff. We talk through uh, tips for hunting and scouting river bottoms. We discuss the southern rut and just a whole lot more like that. We really dive into a lot of different facets of how Brad has found success, not just in the south, but across the country too. Um, so I think it's going to be one of those episodes that I think we're all going to enjoy a lot. I'm excited for you to hear it. We don't have Dan with us today for the pregame show, so we're going to be able to get right into the episode here in just a second, but I do want to give a couple quick little plugs since we have a touch of extra time here, Um, and the first thing here is that way back on episode 218 of the podcast, my buddy Andy May was on the show with us, you might remember, and during that conversation, he shared some thoughts and ideas for dealing with target panic. We got a lot of great feedback on that. People had more questions. People wanted to see some things. So what me and Andy decided to do was actually put together a couple videos that better explain and illustrate some of the concepts that he discussed. So if you're interested in that, those videos are now out there on the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. We've got one where Andy's explaining you know, what target panic is and how to diagnose it. Uh, we have another video where we show ways to eliminate target panic by using an unanticipated release and how you can achieve that with a number of different uh, like different actual releases. So index finger release, uh, hinge style release, thumb button release. And then there'll be a video coming out here. It should be out by the time you're listening to this, which um, goes through some drills that you can use while you're practicing at home to really hammer all this stuff. So definitely check out those videos if you're interested in that concept, that issue. And we've got many other weekly video blogs that I've been posting over there, all on the Wired Hunt YouTube channel. So if you're not subscribed to that, please do so. Because again, this fall, there's going to be a lot of content on there. I'm going to be getting some more help on the video side of things, which is something I've been needing for a while. And I think that's going to lead to much better content. So I'm excited about that. And next, we need to take a quick second to thank Onyx for their support of this podcast. And the Onyx Hunt app is something that, you know, similarly to what I mentioned a little while ago, it's easy for me to talk about because it's something that I've personally been using for quite a number of years now. And the Onyx Hunt app it provides me digital maps right on my phone. And with the Elite membership, which is something I bought last year, it gives me access to property owner information, and public land borders, and all sorts of other helpful map layers for the entire country. You can go in there and select whatever states, up to five states at a time, where you want this in-depth information. And it's funny, just uh, just last night, 
I was using my Onyx app because my buddy Furter, he was telling me about this new property that he might be getting permission to hunt on. And it's actually kind of near uh, my main southern Michigan farm that I hunt. So I was kind of excited to hear about that. And I wanted to check out the aerial of the property. I wanted to see what this place looked like. Um, but he was driving. He didn't really know how to describe to me where it was at other than the road name and then the, the last name of the property owner. So he told me he'd send me a screenshot later when he got done driving. But I'm an impatient person. So I pulled up my Onyx app last night. I started slowly panning along this road he mentioned. And I was just looking at all the property owner names and trying to match up to find this place he's talking about hunting and I kept going kept going until I finally I actually found the place was able to see the parcel boundaries was able to see the aerial view of the place I could see the topo lines I could see you know that I could see the swamps I could see the crop fields and the timber and everything like that basically everything I needed to analyze the property and be able to say hey yeah further you should try to hunt this place definitely try and nail down that permission because it looks pretty nice um, so I'm hoping that works out because you know not only would I like Josh to have a nice place to hunt but it would be uh selfishly nice for me to have him hunting close here because if all the stars align i'm hoping he will be close enough to swing on over and help me drag holyfield out of the woods one of these nights so uh we'll see i digress though i guess my point here is that i'm personally finding the onyx hunt app to be a very handy tool and if you'd like to check it out for yourself you can visit onyxmaps.com or head to the mobile phone app store of your choice and now Let's get this show on the road. All right, with me now on the line is Brad Ferris. Welcome to the show, Brad. Yeah, thanks, Mark. I appreciate you giving me an opportunity to come come visit with you and, and talk to things that we all enjoy, which is obviously white-tailed deer in all portions of it. Yes, yeah. I, I, I've never had a bad day when I get to talk about deer hunting. That just, uh, it's <laughs> always it's always a good thing. So uh, I understand you've been pretty busy lately, though. How, how are you doing? Well, we're we're doing good, you know. I still still have a, I still do a lot of work with Primos hunting. I've, um, gosh, I started working there, I guess, in the mid '90s, and I don't have any day to day work there as I used to do because now with whitetail properties, you know, just selling land and farms and and hunting land is is, is my everyday job. But I still work on the TV show um, with Will, Jimmy, and myself, and and the other those guys troy lake and jordan um so still get to still get to do some of the fun stuff with those guys and talk hunting property every day so that's kind of my my daily routine now yeah that's uh that is not a bad day-to-day routine right there i think a lot of guys would uh would love that what um look i've been i've been so fortunate and blessed i pinch myself every morning to be sure it's 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 a true day yeah it's funny it's easy i don't know if you're like this too but sometimes it's easy for me to fall into like, you know, it, everything, it, stuff just becomes work eventually, right? No matter how unique or cool it is, eventually it does become work and you find yourself waking up in the morning and you're like, oh man, I got this thing to do and that thing to do and that thing to do. And then I always need to catch myself, just like you said, I need to pinch myself and, and, and say, hey, the stuff that you have to do. You, you get to hop on a phone and talk about deer. You get to run outside and take some pictures <laughs> or check a trail camera and share that online. Like the, the, my work is so blessed right. to be able to do that. So yeah, I have to always remind myself that we've got it really good and uh, need to be thankful for that, right? Every day, very fortunate. Look, I've got to spend so much time in, in the outdoors, and I tell people it's funny. I didn't I didn't even see a dogwood tree bloom until I was about 25 years old. I'm 49 now, and meaning that, 
you know, a dogwood tree blooming in the spring, I would just walk by it and never realize what a great thing it is. But as I got older, you started seeing that thing, and the little things like that started, in nature, started meaning more to me as an outdoors person than than anything. You know, and I guess I guess I kind of take that from what you said. It's it's those little blessings that we have each and every day. We got to be thankful for. Yeah, yeah, very true. So, so rewinding sure. real quick, right to what you're saying a second ago, I just want to get a little bit better idea of of what your what your world looks like right now. Like you said, you're 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 continuing to contribute on the TV shows with with Primos, but on the Whitetail property side, where are you operating? You know, it sounds like around Mississippi, that general area. Um, can you tell us a little mm-hmm. more about where, what you're focused on down there and what you're what you're finding? Sure. So. So Chipper Gibbs, he's my um, he's a part my my full time partner with Whitetail Properties, and he and I are licensed in Mississippi, Louisiana, and Arkansas. And you know our focus every day is is recreational land, farmland, timberland. And um, I mean we have properties that we that we sell two people and four people from from forty acres to I mean I got one property right now that's ninety eight hundred acres. So we we handle all things recreation, timber and farm, and that's that's what we do every day. Now, as far as houses go, <clears throat> I mean, I can sell a house just like anybody, but we do. That's not what we do. We our focus is on land and farm and you know ranch timber type stuff. Just just recreational style focus. So um, yeah, we do that in these three states down here. And I've had some, I've helped some guys on some elk ranches out west as well. Because as long as you have a real estate license, you know, it can work anywhere with a licensed person in that area so so every day is wake up thinking about you know hunting land and just trying to make people's dreams come true because we're responsible for people really really lean on us to help them make a purchase of a lifetime yeah and i take that very seriously and, and not lightly because misguiding somebody would you know would not be would not be something that i would would ever do yeah. So. You mentioned you've got a 9,800 acre property for sale. It, I, it's mm-hmm. just happenstance. I think I ran across this property. Is this the Brandywine Island? It is. It's Brandywine. It's actually even in two states. It's in uh, Arkansas and Tennessee. Another whitetail agent, David Pritchard and I have it um, listed for the, for the owners. And it is, it is a truly magnificent piece of property. It's just been protected for so many years. And it's, it's like something you would have seen, you know, 30 years ago. It's just that been preserved that much. Um, yeah. And it is one incredible deer, deer property, duck and turkey track as well. Yeah. I, I was, I was, I've been watching a bunch of the different Primos YouTube videos lately. And there's an old one where, where you guys are hunting this place called Brandywine Island. And so I was watching that and I'm like, man, this place looks pretty <laughs> wild. So I, so I just Googled Brandywine Island to try to figure out where this is. And then I saw, oh, it's, it's actually a, a an individual property that's, that, you know, is actually being sold right now. So I ended up looking at it, looking at the, the listing and, and wow, that looks like a absolute dream location. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's that's pretty awesome. So it's kind of funny you mentioned that. It is, it is great. It's just a big place. You, you don't see that many single-owned properties. Been in that family for, for like I said, thirty years. And the, the man that purchased it passed away, and his wife, you know, still own now. And it's just it's, she's in her eighties, and she's just kind of ready to ready to pass it on to the next guy. Yeah. And uh, I wish I was that next guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. it's, it's a beautiful place. Yeah. Wow. So, but, um, so let's talk about 
that general area down there. I mean, if I understand right, you grew up in you grew up hunting in Mississippi. Is that right? That is correct. Yeah, I grew up in in Jackson, Mississippi. I live in um, a little small town outside of Jackson now, called Raymond, and um, been here my whole life. And we have a place that I hunt on the Mississippi River. It's called Togo Island. That um, we turned it into a share club, and that's kind of got to be a big thing down here in the South, and, and even in other parts of the country. Where let me explain what a share club is. Where yeah. guys go in. And so it's 12 of us on Togo. You know, you have undivided interest. You, I bought a share, and other guys, we went in and put this together. And um, we have rules just like a hunting just like a hunting camp. But, you know, you take a big property like that, it's very few people can, can buy it on their own. So it's been done enough and been somewhat perfected where it just really, really works great. Because our, our place is 7,200 acres, which is, which is extremely big for a southern property but you can imagine one guy biting that bullet that's a pretty big step but you get you know 10 or 12 guys and it's really an unattainable position for for most people and um and it's just a beer factory down there that's one of the things that seems very unique compared to like where i'm hunting up in michigan it seems like down the southern part of the u.s there's a lot of these hunting clubs or sounds like, you know, a share, a share club where you actually share property that that's something I've never experienced where you might share property with that many people that, that all know each other and are kind of working together a little bit. What's that? I mean, what's that like sharing a property like that with people that are all kind of have a vested interest in it? Anything that you have to uniquely think about when, when planning your hunts or when actually figuring out management plans or if someone's going to get into something like this themselves that they should be aware of before diving in? Yeah, and, and it's, it's, it's really easy to do. Um, so say, say you take yourself and, and four buddies up in, in your part of the country and say you wanted to – and it's, you know, a 1,000 acres in the south to me – is not near as big as a thousand acres, say in the Midwest. Um, it just it hunts different here. Um, the, the, you need more land here to, to manage deer herds to to a, a mature age than, than I think you do in the Midwest. Um, but the biggest thing is is get your you got to have an operating agreement. You got to put that together. You got to have a set of rules. And, you know, it's not like owning your own place. You you do have to have rules to go by, and everybody has to adhere to them. Like, we have a board of managers that makes the day-to-day decision on how we operate. Um, we, we pay a yearly um, due, you know, dues that, that operates the club, pays, you know, for the food plots, pays, pays for the equipment, and just the day-to-day operation. The biggest thing I would tell somebody starting one, the people are the key to it. You know, you get 10 good people, we, we really have a good time. And we have as much fun after the hunt, you know, around the fire pit, around eating time or supper time as we do any as we do hunting. Um, so the biggest thing is finding people that can get along with each other. Um, we do not sell a share to anybody unless they come spend uh, a couple weekends hunting with us. And, you know, we want them... To, to like us as well. So it's just a, instead of just taking somebody with a check, we want to get to know them before they, we let them in, in the, you know, as a partner. Um, and we feel like it's important that they get to know us. 
Yeah. And it, it, it can really work good. It just takes some time and effort, but it's a great way for for four or five or six people to go in and, and buy a nice size property and be able to afford it and manage it. So th- this is something it's I've a, always... It's a, it's, I was going to say this is something I've thought about a lot, you know, going in on a property with a group of friends, because to your point, it Mm -hmm. can be hard to afford a big property on your own. But if you get a group together, pull your money, share the place. But then at the same time, there's always that lingering worry in the back, you know, what if someone can't pull their own or what if something goes wrong handful of years into it? Like, is there anything, if you're actually going to buy into a place like this with friends from, uh, you know, being a realtor yourself, like, from the actual setting up the purchase agreement or how you set that up or any kind of safety mechanisms that you put in place to make sure you're protected if someone goes off the deep end or if someone all of a sudden can't pay their share anymore or anything on that front, like if, if we're actually going to buy property with a couple friends or something that we should be thinking about? Well, so the way most of them are set up is you have like a company, say like a, um, say like a land company. And the way we do ours is you can buy into the land company, but that does not give you rights, recreational rights on the property. Meaning you, you own a part of that as an investment. You know, we could never take that away from you, but we can, we have it set up where if somebody falls off the deep end for whatever, five years from now, you know, gets in trouble, whatever that may be, we can, we can actually force them out of the, the recreational rights that's in the operating agreement that they signed from day one. Um, now we can't, all we can do is buy them out of the, the company side of it. Um, but we do have checks and balances set up to actually, you know, remove somebody from the recreational side in case that happens. And unfortunately that's, that's the unfun part of it, but that's something that has to be done to protect everybody's interest. Yeah. Um, it's just a simple operating agreement that an attorney can do. And, um, yeah, but it, it it definitely has to be there because you know things change. Ten years from now is a long time. You just don't never know what what could happen. Yeah, yeah, that seems smart so. to make sure you've got the the paperwork kind of have that operating agreement, everything figured out ahead of time. It's easy, I think, for some people, especially if you're friends. You know, just like oh, let's just shake our hands and say we're going to do this and and just go ahead with it. But to your point, things change. Um, you never know what yeah, might you, come up. You never know, and you have to. I guess the the easiest way to explain it, it's a business and you have to treat it like a business and set it up as a business. And, um, and if you do that, it's, it, it works, it works good. I mean, I can't, can't tell you how proud I am to be a, be a part of, of Togo and be able to recreate there year round. And I'm headed there next week to do, get on a bulldozer and redo some food plots and make some new food plots all week. So awesome. that's, that's actually more fun to me than, than the rut. Yeah, crazy as that sounds. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do know that's fun. I, I, in a second, I'm going to want to ask you a little more about what you guys are doing there specifically. But I want to jump a little bit back towards just hunting clubs in general because I understand there's a lot of clubs out there where folks don't actually own the land together, but they, you know, maybe 20 guys all hunt this chunk that maybe is leased from a, you know, timber company or something like that. Right, um, right. So I've heard, you know, people mention this kind of stuff, but again, I've never done it. Um, but I hear stories of having to sign up for a specific tree stand each day or different things along those lines. Is there anything you've, you've heard or have found as far as how to just, you know, that just seems like it'd be a little bit difficult when you don't actually get to choose where you want to hunt on a given day. You know, usually 
I'm making a decision based off of you know information I have, weather conditions, wind conditions, access routes, all these different things, trail camera data that are going to tell me where I need to be on this given day. But if mm-hmm. I had to then, if I knew where I wanted to be, but then I have to, you know, hopefully no one's already there kind of situation or sign up the day before, that seems like it'd throw a, a wrench in it sometimes. How how, how do you recommend people handle or, or make the best of those types of situations? You know, I hunted that, and of course, I have I know what you're saying. You, you, you have trail cameras, and, and you have places you want to hunt, and, you know, you, you wait on a perfect wind, but but that is the thing about a hunting club, even a share club that you got to be able to, to deal with is, is just to, I kind of say, you got to, you know, you got to play with others, so to speak and, and have some patience. That's, that is the part of it. You know, you're not there on your own. It ain't like you own your own four or 500 acres and you can set up 10 spots and hunt them when you want. And, you know, that's the ideal situation. But for, for many of us, you know, hardworking folks that can't afford that, you have to get in a hunting club that say, uh, timber company owns and you lease say 2,500 acres and it's 25 people. Um, you know, and all of them are set up different. Some clubs have it where everybody's got their own little spots and that's where they go day in and day out. And others have a sign in board where you, where you draw, which this kind of works good where you draw, say if it's 10 of us and you put your uh, hand in the hat and you draw one through 10, well, whoever draws one obviously has first picked that, that morning or that afternoon and then whoever draws 10 has last pick so um you, that, that's the part of a hunting club that you have to be able to to deal with um as well and that's that's kind of deer camps a big thing down in the south a lot of deer camps but they weren't really good i mean everyone always be there's some issues but um they usually don't take people long to weed those bad bad apples out and and, and some people just need to hunt their own place and hunt it the way they want. I guess, I guess when I'm primos hunting, we are serious and we hunt really hard, but when I'm fun hunting, I don't get too, I don't get too worried about being so serious. I just like to have fun and appreciate the time outside. Yeah. You you mentioned there's a lot of deer camps. That's a, that's a big thing for you guys down there. It seems like there's a really rich tradition down in in the Southern deer hunting tradition seems to be a really unique, really special thing. Can you, can you talk about that a little bit? What what that what makes that so special? You know, when I grew up in a in a deer camp in Jasper County, which is in the eastern side of Mississippi, and this, I think one reason there's so many camps like that is because there is a lot of timber company. You know, timber is a big thing here, and it's a lot of company companies that own large tracts of land, and they lease they lease out portions of it to certain clubs, and that's just kind of been that way for years. Um, and, and that's from east to west, all over the the, the state of, of Mississippi, Alabama, and even Louisiana too. The the same. Um, it's definitely important. The the gosh, I can remember as a kid, could not wait to go to deer camp on Friday night. That was like what I lived for. I quit all the sports <laughs> in the seventh grade because they started interfering with my deer camp time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, that that was just the most important thing to me was going to deer camp on Friday night and hunting till Sunday at, at, you know, till Sunday afternoon. And, um, I know many people share that same, same way of, uh, of thinking and doing this, this day in town. Yeah. Yeah. We, we kind of have a similar thing up in, up in Northern Michigan. We've got our Northern Michigan deer camps and little cabin up in the big woods. And, you know, one of the things that we always used to do up there that later in life, I found out that some people, 
don't do and they kind of thought was bizarre um but they we have like buck poles is this thing up there where you know mm-hmm. opening weekend a gun season or whatever everyone you know gets your buck and you hang them on these poles and even like gas stations and you know grocery stores and stuff will have these big poles out in the parking lot and everyone brings their deer there and everyone hangs their deer and then every you know folks mill around all night looking at the deer and talking about telling your stories and everything like that um that just seemed to be mm-hmm. like what you just did and that was like the coolest thing but then as an adult later i talked to people down in you know kentucky or iowa or wherever and they're like you do what you hang all these deer on a pole um they thought it was kind of bizarre <laughs> seeing these pictures of 10 deer or 20 deer all lined up like that. Is there anything unique mm-hmm. like that or anything unique to a Southern deer camp that you guys do that maybe we'd see up here and be like, Oh, that's kind of different. Uh, you know, nothing like that, like in a community where you take and hang your deer. But I know at every hunting club, we, you know, we, we call them skin and sheds, you know, this, the, the skin and shed, like at Cottonmouth, <clears throat> where we do our, <clears throat> all our primo stuff. We the skin and shed is kind of like the center place where we always congregate and we meet at. And we can't wait to get to late morning and and then right after dark to see what happens. So our skin and shed, so to speak, is is kind of our fun place as a group where we get together and do what you just discussed. But it's you know it's just within our group. It's not in a like in a public in town or anything like that. Gotcha. So yeah, skin and shed is an important part of deer camp. Very fun. Where yeah. all the laughs and stories are told. Yeah, the social hub. That is that is an important part. Yes, that's a good way. Yeah, you talked a little bit ago about um, how a thousand acres down there doesn't seem to hunt as big as a thousand acres in the Midwest. Maybe um, can you expand right. on that? I'm kind of curious because because again, um, I haven't hunted down south. I'm always trying to better understand what makes it unique down there. What's unique about that situation? Um, why do you think that is? You know, and we have a lot of the deer numbers. We have a lot of deer numbers here. I spent a lot of time hunting in, in Iowa, Illinois, Kansas, um, you know, years ago. And, you know, a 500-acre farm, say in Illinois, it just, it's kind of hard to explain. You, you, you A mature deer, it's a five-and-a-half-year-old deer down here, in my experience, does not move like a five and a half year old deer in the Midwest. You know, I can remember seeing hunt just say a hundred and sixty inch five or six year old deer and hunting him in Illinois and seeing him move every day and trying to figure him out. It, here you have the like the first few days of the season, if they're on some kind of summer pattern, you have you know you might have an opportunity at one of those kind of deer if not chances are you're gonna have to wait till the rut you know before or during the rut to catch them moving they just they just don't move here typically like they do up there and a lot of it too is food because you know late season in your part of the world if you got some kind of food source established it's a it's you're going to see some deer i mean they're going to move we don't really have winter kill here we don't have extreme cold temperatures that make those deer move so you know you really really rut time is is when when things happen here on those really top end deer now backing that up why does that how does that change i mean it's some similarities in, in the midwest versus the south but um it just it just hunts different um how can i put that into words where people listening can understand that um you know a lot of our stuff is thick uh, like on our place that we own and like many other people to me cover 
is the most important thing you can have. I mean, I know everybody has, you know, all these attractants and feed and makes food plots, and that's a huge part of of hunting. But I look at cover before I look at anything, because if I got plenty of cover, I'm going to have plenty of mature deer. Um, if you only got one, say I, say I got a 200-acre block, and this is kind of nuts and bolts of what I enjoy doing most is – if you got a 200 acre block of land and you got like a 40 acre clear cut in the middle of it and the rest is open timber. Yeah. You're going to have some, some deer in that 40 acres to keep it a sanctuary. But if you take that same 200 acres and you make four 10 acre bedding areas, clear cuts or heavy thinnings on that 200 acres, you're going to hold more mature deer in my opinion, because they can spread out. I mean, yeah, they're fine this time of year hanging out together, but once that velvet, comes off they turn into different you know different animals and you need to give them plenty of space to to spread out yeah could could you could you um run through a little hypothetical with me here i'm curious yeah because i love the same thing that you're talking about here where i love the ability to um to to kind of paint whatever picture you want on a piece of property kind of do things like that to try to make it better for wildlife, better for hunting. Um, I, I don't own any land, so I've had very limited opportunities, but I've been able to do this on a couple of little spots. Um, but let's say you've got that situation, that 200-acre block of timber, um, and let's mm-hmm. say you own it and you can do whatever you want with it to try to, to try to make it into a better piece of whitetail ground. Let's say it's down in Mississippi, it's, it's open timber, but you've got you know the ability to do some stuff. Can you walk us through this hypothetical 200 acre property and how you'd approach turning it from just a big block of timber into something you think would be an ideal whitetail setup. Sure. Sure. And I, and I, it seemed like I I do this daily because it's a big part of what we do at at whitetail properties, explaining stuff to people and helping them. Um, So in in a, this is one way I like to think about it and explain it. The uglier a piece of property is, the better hunting it is nine times out of 10. Meaning if it's been cut (laughs) and it's briars and it's nasty and it's thick, I mean, that is the perfect habitat, the perfect place for, for whitetail deer. That's what they love. If you walk out there and it's open trees and beautiful, you know, you've got a lot more timber value actually, but you just don't have the cover and the sanctuary for those, for those deer. They just deer, deer won't fix stuff here. I've seen deer in the Midwest. I mean, bucks, just bed on the side of an open ridge you don't hardly ever find that down here deer bedded up now he might be in a if a tree fell from a storm or a top he might be laying in that every now and then but they just they they don't stay in that open country they don't find that sanctuary every time those bucks young and old um so how would you set up that so if you can if you have the opportunity to make those deer sleep where you want them eat where you want them as in a food plot, food source from summer or, or winter. To me, that is ideal. And if you set it up with a southerly section and a northerly section, meaning, you know, if you got south winds, you got these, this area you can hunt. And if you got north winds, you got this area you can hunt and just draw it out where if you go in and you, you cut timber and it gets thick, they will be there. That question, they will be there. And then if you leave some open timber in between that and say a, a two to five acre food plot, well, you just created a transition area that whether it's 
you know, from, from feed to bed or from dead to feed, you have the ability to get in there and actually hang stands and hunt those deer and make them somewhat move in a pattern that you control. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, it does. To you. Um, and then it takes three to five years to create that in some instances, but once you get it done, it can be so much fun. And not, not only do you create that and it gives them a safe place to be, but it also gives you, you got to remember access, you know, getting into those spots and getting out of those spots. That's, that's as important as anything, especially getting out in the afternoon. You know, if you got to blow your deer out of a food plot every afternoon, you, you know, you're just, you're putting pressure on them and, and that's fine. You're going to see deer, but those older deer just, golly, they just don't, they just don't put up with it. Mm-hmm. You mentioned, you mentioned the beginning, uh, about how, you know, rather than having your property with like a big 40 acre cut in the middle, you'd rather have four 10 acre cuts. So you've, like you said, spread them out a little bit. When you're setting right, up that, right, when right. you're setting up these food plots, you're carving in these food plots too. In this scenario, if we're trying to look at like the ideal, would you then try to pair a small food plot with each one of those bedding areas too, or would you have oh, just absolutely. the one big? Yeah, what would you do there? No, no, that's that's and maybe I didn't explain myself, but yeah, I would I would create a food plot and a bedding area at each of those four locations, gotcha. and maybe have a maybe have a couple more, just depending on every place is a little different. Um, yeah, definitely. You would, I would, you would need to create that, um, and and that's why I say you got four. So you got two. You can hunt on a south southerly flow pattern, and then you got two. So you can hunt on a northerly, you know, flow pattern with the winds. Yeah, yep. that's exactly right. Just you know, and that's just a little scenario. It could be much bigger than that, obviously. Um, now I do like big food plots. You know, you can have little. The bigger the food plot, the more deer are going to use it. And, and I love having a, a, a big food plot that I call a destination plot on a track too, if, if possible, because if a small one, you might feed, let's just say two to five deer that, that, that live in that section of your farm. If you have a big one, you're going to have deer come from all sections of that farm as a, as a nighttime thing. That's why when you have fields and you see all, you walk in those fields, you're like, man, look at the rubs and the scrapes and the deer side. That's because these deer, that's where they go and spend their nights. You know, that's where they stay and they spend time there. That's why you have so much buck sign around those big fields. Mm-hmm. And, um, I love a big field. If, if, if you can keep it quiet and you don't have, you have it built where you don't have vehicles going by it. Um, and then it's just a sanctuary thing. And that's, that's what you have to do to keep those mature deer, you know, to, to create opportunities for you to, to even see them in the daylight with a, with a bow or a gun. Yeah. Yeah. When it comes to food plots, is there anything unique that's working particularly well down there for you? Um, or anything that you're doing there that might be different than, you know, our great big corn and bean fields and everything that we might have up here? You know, not not really, because in like in the Delta portions and the, and other portions of of the state, we have a lot of corn, beans, a lot of you know ag production, and in those areas with that agricultural influence is where our bigger deal, our deer that weigh the most, our deer that that, that are the biggest. Um, just there's all kind of different blends out there, um, man. As much as you, as you can get, that you can 
not to just pick out one thing, but if you can create something for those deer that gets it gets them from October through May or June, which is a simple fall blend of like wheat, oats, and clover. You know, that's, that's, that's what I would suggest to somebody. And then you have brassicas that you can add, you know, you can keep adding to, to that January, February, March food source. But, but just the easiest is just like a, a, a simple wheat oat and clover mix. Um, just to simplify it. Yeah. Yeah. And what about growing conditions now, and everything? Oh, we got, that's the thing about here. You know, we, our winters are not bad. So a cold front comes through and it gets, you know, down in the, in the twenties, maybe for a couple of nights and highs in the fifties and then it might get, get up a little bit. It's just kind of as those fronts come in. So growing conditions are great here. We have long summers that gets hot, but we, we have a good bit of rainfall here too. I mean, I think our average rainfall is 70 something inches and, a year so it's really just all about your your soil prep and your preparation because you're never going to have a year where you can't make anything grow hardly you just gotta gotta prepare the ground right and but speaking of food plots and i consider this a food plot too what i started doing on some properties i help people on so you got a 10 acre clear cut like we discussed earlier well if you go in everybody wants to know what, what do i go back and replant it with and we used to do that the problem with replanting in trees, whether it be pines or hardwoods or whatever, is 10 years, which is not a long time anymore, you're going to be faced with the same problem you were from day one. Those trees are going to canopy over and you're going to start losing that understory. You follow me? You know, as, yeah. they, as they mature. Yeah. Well, what I started doing is taking those 10-acre blocks that you've created for bedding areas or sanctuary areas and spraying them every three years with a chemical, whether it be from a helicopter or do it from a ground rig and, and just killing those, all the woody stuff and letting it start over again. So, so you're um, not selectively doing anything. You're going kind of doing a blanket spray of everything, setting it all back. Killing everything woody. Yes, sir. Yeah. Do you ever burn? What happens is, uh, you know, we, we do burn in pines and, and that is good. But the problem with burning is you completely clean up your area every year. So that's good for, for food, for turkeys and deer. Yes. But when you go in there and burn, you know, all you, you're, you're actually all your covered leaves, you're burning mm-hmm. it up. So you're back to square one. Yeah. Um, so I prefer to have a, a secluded place that I just, that I keep totally controlled and keep the grass and, the dewberry and the briars and just all the the stuff that deer need to survive their main food sources that just keeps them keeps them thick and healthy yeah the shade is their worst enemy yeah and to your earlier point that kind of setup not only does that make great cover and bedding but when you've got all that new growth you've basically got a natural food plot too right that's exactly right and, and the deer got to have it because you can plant all the stuff you want we can, but you have to, have, I mean, the natural stuff that mother nature put there for them, that's what they need. And if you give them plenty of that, everything else is just gravy to them. And it, it just, it really works. Yeah. Speaking and it of, takes a while to get that process, but it's, once you get it, it's, it's, man, does it work good? Yeah. Speaking of natural forage, um, you know, when I'm walking around 
uh, property here in Michigan, and I'm lo- I'm looking for maybe an old apple tree, or I'm looking for white oaks. Um, I'm looking for that kind of stuff where there might be some some soft mass or some hard mass. Might be a natural food source I can find back in the woods and and hang a stand near. Um, but for someone down by by you in Mississippi, if you can't plant food plots, but you're looking for these natural food sources that deer particularly like down by you, what are some of those things that people mm-hmm. should key in on? Same thing you just said. I mean. You- of course, you got different, like early on, you're going to have all your oak species. You're going to have, we have, you know, persimmons and we call them bean trees, which is a honey locust. And you familiar with a honey locust? It's got the long yeah. black bean on it. Yep. Um, that's an important food source for the fall. And here, usually like, we call them uh, water oaks or pin oaks. They usually fall first. So and that's going to be in October and Man, when you start finding those and you walk up under that tree and you see all that deer sign and this fresh sign, old sign, you know, that that's that's when you get excited and put that stand up around it. Uh, whether it be persimmon. Persimmon is usually fall early October. The honey locusts usually fall in October. Um, we have another species of oak trees here. Um, well, I call them like a, a swamp chestnut or a nut all or striped oak. It's a bigger acorn, but they usually don't fall till November, December, and even carry on into January. So it's it's basically the same. It's just in some of our big forests, you know, you have you in places you have so many acorns that it's really hard to key in on any one tree because yeah. there might be a hundred of them in a bottom. Is um, it that? Would it be accurate to say that a lot of the stuff you guys are hunting down there is? big timber like big blocks there's not as much edge as maybe you'd see in like the ag land in iowa or something is that right oh not really you get in the mississippi delta um there's a it's a lot of a lot of big just thousands and thousands of acres of of agricultural ground with ditch roads with little woodlots um a, a lot of farmers have taken their marginal ground, farm ground, and, and put it into CRP or WRP, which okay. is excellent habitat. Yeah, um, I'm sure y'all have some of that too. And yeah. you know, so, so some of the best hunting places in Mississippi are, are WRP or CRP places because when they plant that stuff, like we just talked about, you have all that natural stuff is thick. It holds the deer. It's plenty of food, and uh, it gives them a place to to get old. Yeah. That's can't, some of the finest spots. Yeah, can't beat that that CRP and those grasses and everything. That <laughs> beautiful, beautiful habitat. Deer just it, seem to just dive right in. I and kind of to your comment, backing up to what we talked about about like the ten acre blocks. Really and truly, that's all that we, that 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 I'm trying to create as I explain that. Trying to create that CRP or WRP type scenario just inside a woodlot and keep it you know keep it at its prime uh life cycle yeah for, for all the plants yeah do you do you have when you're working on something like that on your own property or on a property you're helping someone out with um and you're making these these little bedding area type things do you have like a minimum size you always try to make sure they they at least are this big or can someone go in there and you know they've got a chainsaw is all they have and a half a day and they get a half acre or something is that is that worthwhile in your opinion or absolutely and we've done it that way too i mean it's not always we have big equipment and stuff to do that or the opportunities to do it but if you can go in there 
with a chainsaw. I mean, a couple guys with chainsaws can make a knock a really good dent in some bedding habitat in a day. You know, if you can go in there and cut stuff. And um, another popular way is just not is they call it hack and squirt, where you take a hatchet and you go to your local forestry store and you can get a chemical that you can actually spray. You know. Uh, cut the bark, spray it, and it'll, and it'll kill that, you know, to kill that tree and stop it from shading. Yeah. Um, there's several ways to do it, but yeah, put it, it, a half acre, one acre, a quarter acre, any cover is better than none. Yeah, yeah. In my opinion. Yeah, it seems like, to your point, a, a tool like a chainsaw or the hack and squirt method or something, it's it's so much easier than most people think as far as you, the way you can transform an area. You can take an area that's mm-hmm. wide open timber and, and turn it into just a whitetail mecca by adding that cover. Um, and I know one popular thing is called hinge cutting. I'm sure you're familiar with that. I, yeah, I, yeah. I, there's a lot of information about hinge cutting out there, and I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful, you know, portion of habitat to create um as well and even if you have a small place it's, i just can't stress enough how important it is to give those deer cover you know don't ride atvs through it don't walk through it um i have places that once we we plant our food plots that's the last time a gas vehicle is allowed in that section hmm. you know you either walk in there or you use electric we don't we just we don't we want to keep the disturbance at a minimum at all costs after, after the food plots are planted, you know, in the, in the fall and winter. Yeah. So, so speaking of, um, you know, making these bedding areas back to that side of things, I heard you mention a couple times you use the word sanctuary. Um, mm-hmm. what's your take on these sanctuary areas? When you say sanctuary, is that a place that you will never go in or is that a place that maybe you'll hunt a few times or how, how seriously do you take this quote unquote sanctuary? Well, I wouldn't say I would never hunt there. Um, I, I, I would not hunt there until the right time of year. Um, and, and just keep it, man, just keeping it a place where you don't disturb them. And then if I did hunt there, it would just be on the fringes and it would just have to be the ideal conditions as far as the wind's concerned. Um, it's just, you know, those deer will come and go from there if, if they're not, they're not spooked and they're comfortable. But once you start spooking them, even the old does, I mean, it's just, they get, they, they didn't, they live there. We're just visitors there most of the time, but that's their home. And, and you got to, I, I mean, it might sound silly, but I treat it as their home and, and try to respect that. So the more comfortable they are, the more fun we're going to have, you know, watching the show. Yeah. yeah. If you understand me. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. What, when you're, when you're going into your hunts and in the, this is a, Admittedly, this is like an incredibly high-level question. There's a thousand ways you could go with this. Um, but you just talked about some of the things you're thinking about as far as trying to keep these deer um, as unpressured as possible, make them feel comfortable, respecting their home. Um, what other things are you doing to do to accomplish that? So what are some of the ways that you keep pressure low? What are some of the ways that you minimize your impact when you're going into hunt or manage a property? Um I think it's obviously a consistent thing between most anyone that has consistent success killing mature bucks is the fact that they are able to somehow create a situation where these deer don't realize that they're being hunted or at least not as much as they are. Um, How do you Mm -hmm. go about trying to do that yourself? Well, a lot of it goes back to 
if you can set up your place that you know you can get into to to stands you can get out of stands um you know that's your biggest impact is your movement obviously coming to and from places and you know you just have to hunt smart it's really it's really not that hard but you got to have some some patience and be disciplined enough to where hey man i got this acorn tree they are killing it i got trail cam pictures of a shooter there but the wind's marginal you know if i if i can only hunt my best spot one time because that's all the conditions will allow me that's all i'm going to hunt if you try to if you and i know we got you know ozonics actually they work great scent control works great but still um if you use that with that discipline of 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 hunting your spots when only their conditions allow it, I think I think you'll be much more successful. Yeah, each yeah. time. I mean, that, that's just that discipline part. It's hard too when you got those trail cameras and you got two or three nice bucks or shooter bucks, and that's all you can think about is sitting in that tree stand. Man, <laughs> you want to kind of push the envelope sometimes, but I, I I don't. I never do. Yeah, yeah. So something I like to talk to all of our different guests about is how they go about making the decision when to strike. So you've got this honey hole that you think is going to be great, but to your point, you don't want to push the envelope too much. You don't want to go too often. You don't want to go too early. Um, what are the factors that help you decide that, yes, today is the day I need to go in? Is it, is it a weather factor? Is it a timing factor, combination of a whole bunch of stuff? would love to hear about that for you. Well, typically, it, typically it's going to be weather. You know, when you when when you got high pressure and you have fronts coming down, you have some consistent winds a lot of times, unless they're right when they first hear and this is blowing too hard, then they kind of swirl. But here for us, if we have those low pressure days when it's not much wind blowing and it's warm and humid, and we had you know we got those that southerly flow coming coming in, those are the worst days. Now, when you got those cool days and you walk outside and it's cool and the wind's crisp and Man, that, that that's when I get excited because if you think about it, the days that we hunt that it's kind of yucky, you don't see many deer those days. But the days that we hunt when it's nice and it feels good, that's when we see most of the deer, in my opinion. Um, and so that's just just let the weather dictate it. That's that's how I feel is it's so important to make your decisions on 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 when to go. You know, don't don't waste a good spot on a bad day weather wise. Yeah. Do you, do you give the moon any attention at all? Do you care at all about that? You know, I do because definitely you, you see some, some changes in movement with the moon, but you know, Hey, hunting season short. So I, I'm, I'm more concerned about the weather and the, and the, and, you know, being able to get to my spot without being detected and leave my spot. than I am the moon because they still out there. They, they're going to move anytime but if you got good weather and full moon I, I think that's still i think that's still a fun day versus not going yeah yeah now i wouldn't take my vacation if i had a week of vacation i wouldn't take it during full moon in november i can tell you that because that can be a real slow time <laughs> in the south because our rut's in december here where the midwest is mostly november stuff yeah can you can you walk us through that a little bit because Everyone I've ever talked to who hunts down in the south has got a different take on how the rut operates down there, when it's really the best time to focus on. What's where, What are you seeing where you hunt as far as the timing of the, of the rut, as far as how you approach it? Is that 
Is that different at all than what you might do in Illinois or Kansas or something, how you hunt it even? Not, not really. Um, our rut here, our peak breeding days where I hunt are the 21st, 22nd, 23rd, or either 22nd, 23rd, 24th. And the way I know that is because we've done health checks with the, um, with the state on several occasions. And what they do, they shoot those, they shoot does and they do test on them and they, in February or early March and they, then they can count back from the, you know, from the fetus back and know exact day that doe was bred. So that's how I got those. That's, you know, that's accurate information there. So, but you can, I mean, you can set your clock on. I mean, some years it's, it's, it's more intense. Some years it's softer. I mean, I think weather plays a little bit of role in that here in Mississippi because, you know, if it's 60 or 70 degrees and, um, those deer got their coats on, it's, you know, they get hot. <laughs> it's, I think it suppresses the movement during the day and, and, and they get a little more active at night just because of the, the weather. So, you know, and I know you've had hot days probably in your part of the world in November. That's um, killer. During the rut. Yeah. It's just, it just, they just don't do nothing. Mm-hmm. The, the, I've had my best luck hunting water holes in, in the Midwest when it's hot during the rut. Cause you know, the deer just get so heated up. Yeah. Chasing it. How, I mean, is there anything, one of the things I feel like, you know, when I travel out of state and I head to Illinois or Iowa or one of those states where there's just a high number of mature bucks, not quite as much hunting pressure, there's certain things that I can do during the rut that I would never do in Michigan where there's not as many mature bucks, there's a lot more hunters, um, so I'll be much more aggressive, I'll use decoys, I'll do a lot of rattling and calling, different things like that. Um, what's that like in Mississippi or Arkansas can you be aggressive with those types of tactics? Do those things not work as well down there? Um, what's your take there? Um, I don't think decoys. I mean, decoys work here in the right conditions. We've done it, but they don't. The deer don't seem to. I don't know if it's just more. It's just more of them, um, and so they don't. The, the a lot of times the buck to doe ratios are not perfect here because of our, our density. And it's like the deer not as aggressive as they are in the Midwest. Um, but calling, I've, I've had great success calling here, you know, during, during the time of year. And, it, and I've told everybody, you, you have a can call and a grunt call, and if it only works you know, twice a year, it's worth every effort to tote that thing and try it because it, it, it doesn't spook them. <laughs> so I, I want to have those tools in my, in my, my vest every, every day yeah. during the pre-rut, post-rut, and rut time. Yeah, so for you down there, what's that time frame when you would use that stuff? Um, early, you start in early December. It, um, you, you start getting some response uh, the, the whole month, and even, even later in the year, because you know, once, once that rut process starts and, and you have that triple rut later on in January, it can, it can be effective. It, I think it's more important where you call from than than even when you call because if you're if you're in his we've talked about this no matter what we're trying to call whether it's turkeys elk or deer if you're in a spot and you're in big open woods and you call and the buck's 100 yards and he looks and he can see where that sound is coming from and then i mean but he's looking at this clear slate with nothing standing there that that typically doesn't work good but if you're in a in some thick stuff or by a top or on a ridge and that deer has, he, he knows where that sound's coming from, but he has to come over to investigate to see it. 
to see it. You know, it's just not open. That's that's your best scenarios. Yeah, is um, is where you call from. That makes sense. Can you walk us through mm-hmm. the actual? call sequences or, or things like that like like let's say you see a buck and he's off in the distance can you can you walk us through what kind of calls you would use first what you would when you would stop calling or when you would start calling again or when would you switch to something else i'd, I'd be i'd love to hear like your process there gotcha yeah okay so one thing we noticed early, many many years ago is if a deer can hear a can call and if, if anybody listens not for me with a can call, it's, we call it the can. You know, Primo's makes it it's just a little bleak can. It makes a little, like a sound of a doe bleating. But when those deer in the seeking, looking phase, and they hear that sound, golly, they come so many times. And, but it's not a loud sound. And, you know, 15 years ago, before we had the buck roar, you had a regular grunt call. If you tried to do it loud, it would kind of sound like a duck. So that's where we set out to figure out how can we make a grunt call that's loud. So to, to be more detailed, so you see one at 100, 150 yards. He's not going to hear that can if he's walking in leaves. And even if he's not, he might not hear it because it's a real soft sound. But if you, if you can grunt at him and get his attention and then you follow that grunt with that can a time or two, then in his mind, he thinks that's a buck and a doe, a buck chasing a doe. And um, she's getting close to being receptive. That's making that sound. And um, man, do they, do, that, if you can create that scenario for a deer that's 100 to 200 yards from you and get him to hear and look your way, man, they, 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 they come so many times looking. Now, what if you so, do that? You do, the, you do your grunt, get his attention, do it a couple times in the can call, and he is not coming in though. He's still standing there looking around, but he hasn't committed. Do you keep going or do you stop calling now for a ways? What what happens next in that scenario? No, I stop. I stop and just give him some time and watch him, watch his mannerisms, watch his behavior. And I might, you know, if he's looking, I don't want to keep calling at him. Let let him kind of, let the, let his curiosity start working. Now, if he doesn't seem real interested, I might do, he, he knows you're there at that point. Then I might follow it up with a can, a couple, another can sound, and maybe a grunt. Um, and it doesn't work all the time. And if it's not working, my last resort would be with, with a set of rattle horns, just a real quick, like two bucks fighting over a doe um, to, to try to get his attention. And, and then, like I said, sometimes you can try all that. And if, if he's not an aggressive deer, then, you know, I don't think it always works. And you got some deer that are aggressive that, will run towards you every time they hear that. Mm-hmm. I know some people, uh, before calling, they think about the wind direction because uh, sometimes these bucks will, will hear a call but then want to circle downwind of that sound to kind of confirm whether or not it is what it thinks it is. Is that something you worry about mm-hmm. at all? Or have you seen that at all? Do you factor that in at all? Not not really because I'm, I'm hunting my spot based on the scouting and the trail camera information where I think the deer are coming from and going to. And so I, I guess I never go hunt a spot just to call. If I do, it might be midday with rattling horns on the edge of a, like I say, a, a cutover or sanctuary type place to try to call them out of that. But you're all right. They are going to try to circle down wind, but, um, I just, gosh, I'm all, I've already, I think I have my area figured out wind wise. So 
you know, I just go with it at that point. Gotcha. Now, do you ever, it sounds like maybe you do, cause you just mentioned a scenario where I imagine you would do this, but do you ever blind call just, just head in there? I, and... Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and with that same scenario, cause I like to hunt big stuff where I can't see a hundred or 200 yards a lot of times. And so I'll do a grunt and, and maybe a couple grunts and then one bleat. Um, just, you know, maybe every 30 minutes or 45 minutes, I'll, I'll do that. Okay. But if deer are close to you, that's what people need to remember. If a deer's close to you, say at 50 yards, and he can key in on you where that call's coming from, you know, that's a tough one there. Sometimes you have to chance it because that might be your only opportunity to get him 10 yards closer. But, man, a lot of times that'll hang him up too. Yeah. Do you do anything differently when you're calling in Mississippi versus if you're hunting in Iowa or some state like no, that? Same, same thing. Okay. Same exact thing. Same scenario, no matter where. Okay. All right, let's pause here for our last break of the day to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And producer Spencer Newharth has got another Whitetail Properties land specialist with us today to offer some advice on finding hunting properties with cash rent opportunities. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of Indiana. And Tom is going to be telling us about looking at properties that advertise with cash rent opportunity. Cash rent opportunities can mean a lot of things, and it all relates to the productivity of your soils on, on, the, on the tillable ground. And one thing you might want to make yourself familiar with is what's called the NCCPI rating, which stands for the National Commodity Crop Production Index. And that number usually is a, is a range uh, up to about 100. So you'll see NCCPI ratings of anywhere from, say, 40 or 50 on the low end all the way up to 80s and 90s on good productive farmland. What that means, it's a good baseline to compare your productivity of your soils on a national level. So you always want to get bids on your crop ground from, from farmers. If you're not comfortable, you need to educate yourself on what the going rates are. I mean, sometimes a farmer's been paying historically low rent for long, long times just because he had a relationship with the previous landowner. But you want to make sure that the current rates that you could get on that property are up to date with what the standard going rates are. And those change from year to year, $150 all the way up to $300 in the past, you know, per acre on, on ground. So make sure you're in tune with the going rates and don't cut yourself short. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E-S. Something kind of jumping to a different topic than now. Um, I saw a video of yours you were in, and you were talking about how some of your absolute favorite places to hunt are river bottoms. You love hunting the mm -hmm. river bottoms. I think you mentioned a property that was like along the Mississippi River, those types of places. Um, yep. Can you talk about what makes that kind of scenario unique and, and then how you hunt that? You know, we're hunting river bottoms, and it's, it's really not different than anything, um, any other places. It is flat, and so ter terrain, there's not a lot of terrain change. There's not a lot of funnels unless you have sloughs or, or some oxbow-type lakes that you can catch the deer on. Um, I guess why I like the river bottom so much is – it's just the uh, it's just where it is. It's the sounds, it's the smells. Um, you know, the river bottoms are, can be tough. I mean, when the Mississippi River's up, it's mean. But 
if you weigh out the pros and cons of having to deal with flood water, mainly in the springtime, you know, the benefits of that are so good to where I'm willing to deal with the high water half the year to, to reap the benefits of the fall and winter that, that it creates. Um, but as far as being there, it's just, it just, it's just a terrain. It's just a place I enjoy being. Gotcha. Um, there's really nothing, not, not much else I can say other than it's just, it's just one of my favorite places to be. Yeah. Do you, do you ever use rivers and water like that to access locations? Is that a part of, of how you get in and out of places ever? Um, it depends on when the, when the Mississippi river's low, we have a lot of Mississippi river frontage. So when the river's low, that's really not, you know, we don't really have that option to do that. But when the river, say if the river gets somewhat high in, in the wintertime, um, I love to hunt out of my boat. And, and yes, we use that to access places a lot. It's a great way to get in and out. Um, you, you know, once that water starts coming up, then, then we start having those funnel situations that, that we don't have the rest of the year. Cause they're going to follow that edge. And, um, man, that's some fun hunting when, when the water gets up. Cause you, you can, it makes them easier to hunt. Not only does it put them on the higher points, but it also creates more places for you to ambush them around water or crossing shallow spots or, um, that but but yeah boat hunting is a is a great way to do it yeah i imagine that's something that folks could kind of use that kind of idea even when hunting maybe public land or, or big timber land where maybe there's not these natural funnels like you might see between a couple big cornfields and a little pinch of timber in between that's kind of like your prototypical pinch point that everyone shows on you know on the outdoor channel or something but would you say there's a lot of opportunities like this where maybe there's swampy ground and a high point in between or little points that extend out into water? Um, are, are those kinds of things that people could key in on maybe in scenarios where they don't have the ag field easy stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Or you could create that if you're in a situation of, you know, that just comes down to some good old scout and foot time, finding places like that and in, in river country and flat, flat ground. But, a lot of times, if you can create a corridor, say if you cut a block of timber, say it can be five acres, it can be 10 acres, whatever, and I'll go in there and flag a corridor and leave a corridor right through the middle of it where they don't cut a tree. And that serves two things. It, it, it's an access point to get in and out of your stand, and it also gives you that edge effect because you know those deer love to walk those edges and scrape and rub, and, and the deer are going to travel those easy places as long as they're comfortable there. You know, they're going to walk out of that thick stuff and use that corridor to, to move up and down as well as if you got some acorn trees in there. It, it just serves as a perfect place for them morning or evening to move because it's within their sanctuary area, but it's open and they can travel to and from just like we can. It gives us an access point that's easy to get in and out. That that. You, you tracking with me on that? Oh yeah, they like that path of least resistance yeah. when they can get it. Right, right, and and something else you can do is uh, Will Primos and I did did this a lot, and we we call them sneaky roads. So you get a you get a clear cut, or you get a section that's thick. It can anybody can do this. You don't have to create it if it's thick, but go in there and just cut you a trail through that thick stuff. And we, 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 I would access it one time a year with a six foot bush hog and make one pass through there and never go in there again. And you cannot, and, and what you're doing is you're making your own deer trail and you're making those deer come out where you want them to. And it, and, but don't ever go in there 
you know, unless, unless you shoot one and you track him in there. But if you, if you'll do that, you'd be surprised how many deer come out of that thick stuff, come out right in your food plot, come out right by your, your, your bottom where you're, where you have oak trees. I mean, you just, you can make that scenario work wherever your spot is. And that can be in any part of the country, but just create that little deer trail, but you got to stay out of it. Can't go in there for nothing. Yeah. Yeah. Creating your own little funnels almost. That's what it's doing. Yeah. You're just giving them a place to walk easy. Yeah. And it's not a big, you know, it's not a, it's a bigger than a normal deer trail, obviously, but it's just that they're comfortable using it. It's path of least resistance and they use it so much. Are there any other little things you do like that on a property to, to manipulate or influence movement a little bit? I mean, other than we talked about making big bedding areas, we talked about making food plots, but are there any of these smaller tweaks that you, that you add that can just kind of give your properties a little bit more of an edge for you? Um, you know, that's really the That's, that's really about what we talk about is, is, is the main nuts and bolts of it. But the, the cover portion is my focus. I know focus is on food, 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 and, and it is extremely important. But if you got cover, cover first in my mind, food second. You can create the cover and the places to for them to be. You, it just can't be beat. Yeah. As far as numbers. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to reframe a little bit of the conversation as we go forward. I'm kind of curious about some specific examples. Um, from a hunting standpoint, or maybe, maybe it could be habitat, but do you have, you know, if you could look back at last season, maybe, or the season before, you may want to pick a couple, a couple successful hunts where you kill the mature buck, maybe, um, that you remember well, could you walk us through a couple of those where, okay, I killed buck X, it was in this scenario and, and this is why it worked. Like if, if you could point to one or two key things for each of those successful hunts, I'd be really interested to hear how that success came about and what you think you could attribute it to. Do you have a couple of examples like that you could share with us? Yeah, I think I have one really, really good one. So two years ago, I found this nut all or striped oak, as we call them, nut all tree. This is at Cottonmouth at our Primo's place. And I actually shot a doe and I was trailing that doe and I found this tree, had no idea it was there. And it was on the edge of a slough and they were absolutely just killing it. So I got a slough here. I got the tree, you know, 15 yards off the slough. But the problem is there was no, no places to put a tree stand. And I wanted to be able to, I, I had to hunt on a north wind up against the water. So we went in there in October and kind of tried to figure it out. We, you know, we didn't want to go in there later in the year when they really got to using it because the tree wasn't dropping in. So we took a ground blind, a double bull ground blind and set it up in there in October. And we never went back in there until December. And we snuck in one, mid one day, crossed the water. It was about knee deep. Just got hip boots on and, and, and saw the sign there where the blinds there already. So I think what, what was key to this working was we put the blind in there, you know, early. So when the, when the acorn started falling, the deer started coming to feed on that acorn tree, the blind was there. Um, and of course we had it brushed in and, and, and so we waited till the perfect conditions got in there. I think it was like the first week of January, maybe and we Lake Pickle and I, he was running the camera that day and we eased in there, crossed that water, got in that blind and we wasn't there 30 minutes. And this is kind of in one of those sanctuary places. We were on the edge of it and 
had a 10 point come out. I shot is like 140 inch deer, um, 18 yards. He never even looked at, at, didn't, I mean, he was so comfortable in that spot. So I say that I'll give you another scenario. We set that up, you know, two or three months before we knew we were going to hunt it. This goes back with food plots too. If you'll put a, if you, a, a, a blind on a food plot the same day you plant it or just before it greens up. I mean, they never spook from it because, you know, they come out there, they expect a change. It's different. They knew something went on there, but when it starts greening up and they come out there to feed and, and your blind's already there, your stand or whatever, then they don't think twice about it. But if you come put a blind in there, say a month after they've been feeding there, and if you don't do a excellent job brushing it in and hiding it, they're going to, a lot of times they'll pick it out and it might take them a while to get back comfortable there. So, um, I guess the important, my, my point is, 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 is really, you know, think ahead on your spots and how you set them up. And, you know, those, those blinds are not extremely expensive. And if you can, if you can set two or three of them up in places, you know, you're going to use later in the year whether it be on a food plot or on an acorn tree or whatever, pecan tree, whatever they're feeding on, apple tree like you mentioned earlier, once that blind's there from, from day one when they start feeding there, I think you're golden. Yeah. Do you think that that access route helped you out too? Because it sounds like you came through the water, so you probably avoided walking through or near that best cover. Was that something that was pretty key to that as well? 100%. Because if you think about it, if you, you're walking into a place and you jump a deer, I mean, that can really be a domino effect in a lot of ways. One deer gets up another deer, another deer gets up another deer, and before you know it, you know, you just disrupted the whole thing. Um, and you put them on alert, and, and the, chances are they're not coming back that way that afternoon. So yeah. you definitely, you know, your, 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 your route that you get to your stand, you want it to be as, at least as intrusive as possible. Yeah. You mentioned you you were in there walking around. You you, you spotted this this tree, this oak tree. Um, you were scouting, I'm assuming, in some way. Could you could I guess what I'm gonna try to say here? When you scout a new property, or maybe even it's a property you've hunted in the past, but you're there again, um, is there anything you're doing or anything you're looking for specifically? that's unique compared to like the cookie cutter scouting that we hear about. You know, most people walk, they look for rubs, they look for scrapes, they look for sign. Um, is there anything more than that that you're focusing on or unique that, um, that you've picked up over the years is something important to key in on? Yes. And, and I'm going to go back to pretty much, I'm a, I'm a broken record on this cover, cover, cover. Cause if I find the cover, I'm going to find the deer. Then I can find, where they go from there. Um, I mean, I might find the biggest, prettiest oak tree in the woods that's got a ton of deer sign and put a camera on it. And you'd be like, man, they're killing this tree, but most of it's at night. Well, chances are, you know, that tree is, a is, is a long way from where those deer are living. And, um, so I want to find, I want to find their, their home turf first. Once I figure that out, it kind of falls into place with trails and, and that kind of thing. Yeah, so if you find a great patch of cover, you identify, okay, yeah, this is this is a home base for, for a doe family group or some bucks or something. What do you do from that point? Do you just identify, okay, here's cover, and you mark it mentally in your in your head, or do you then 
dive in there and look for specific beds or are you trying to identify each trail that comes out of there or are you planning stand locations around the edges? I'm just kind of curious where your head goes after that point. Yes, trails and edges, never would I go in there. You know, not, not, not if I'm just traveling to a new place. Now, maybe in February or March, I would love to go in there after the season and figure out what's going on for the next year. But if it's, say, October, and like, ooh, man, this is it's a lot of deer sign here. I, I want to figure out the trails, and I want to start hunting the edges. Yeah. And, and and not be too aggressive to start with. You know, if if a guy only has two days a week to hunt, you know, he may he may need to be a little more aggressive because he just don't have the time. Um, but if he's got a week to hunt or two weeks to hunt, you know, spend a day or two on the edges and try to figure out what's going on and then, then get aggressive if, if your time allows for that. Yeah. So walk me through that kind of process too. Let's say, cause you know, it seems like you travel quite a bit to hunt and when you start on a new property, you kind of gave us a very high level there of how maybe start on the edge and, and work your way in. But could you give us a little more detail of what you might, what your hunting approach might be if you, if you showed up on a new property, you've got one week, let's say you got seven days to hunt it. Um, could you walk us through like a hypothetical of how you might start and then how that might evolve through that seven day period? Mm-hmm. Well, I would, I'd, I'd drive through it obviously first. And of course, with all the mapping products that are out there today, you know, you can do so much before you ever even get to that property. You can almost know that property before you, you even get there to hunt. Um, and I'll try to identify a couple of places that I think may be good for them, may be good for winds. Um, and, and try to take it easy. And another thing I don't like to do is hunt in a bottle. I like to try to stay on top just because of the wind. Um, I've had so many tough hunts where when you're down low, that wind just swirls so bad. But if you're on top of a ridge, it usually stays pretty consistent. Um, and the way I explain this to people, if you think about a rock in a stream, so that water's flowing down that stream and it goes over that rock, what does it do on the backside? It's just twisting and twirling. That's the same thing the wind does when it comes over a ridge and it just twists over that ridge and it just, it's, it's real hard to get consistent wind in a, in a bottom. And, and I experience that much more in your part of the world and in, in the Midwest than I have here in the South. But there is some places in the South that, that you got to be careful too. Um, so I keep that in mind. I'm looking for high ridges. I'm looking for cover and you know, many times you can just look at the trails and figure out what's going on. And if you, obviously if you're hunting the rut, I'm looking for the most number of does and the most looking for the highest concentration of deer on that, that property. And that's where I want to key in on. But if you only have seven days to hunt, you I mean, you, you really don't have a lot of time to put trail cameras out and try to find a, a, a target buck that you would, if you were hunting this place all year. So yeah, just, just think about the wind, the cover and the highest concentration of, of deer would be my first focus. Okay. And you mentioned, uh, you mentioned cameras in a scenario mm-hmm. like that you might not have as much time. Um, but what's your, your typical camera process? Do you use those just to identify, you know, an, an inventory of deer in the area or are you big on actually using them to try to pattern deer in some way or what's, what's the way you use that tool? I think it's a combination of both. Um, you know, we're getting our deer using this area in daylight. Is there a mature deer here? Is he in daylight? Because I mean, you put five cameras out, most of the time you're you're going to have one or two 
two bucks. You're like, man, them deer are coming out here in daylight and these other spots, I'm not getting any pictures except, you know, in the dark. And I think that, I think that again refers back to where you're getting close to their, their home turf. And, and if I can get as close to where they're, where they're living without disturbing them, I think you're, I I think you're money ahead every time because if they move late in the evenings, you know, I want to be as close as I can be to them without intruding on them because uh, they might not move to that destination field. That's a half mile from where they sleep or a quarter mile from where they sleep not get there till dark. So if I can get as close to that as possible, if I can identify where that deer is in the daylight, then then that's where I want to try to be yeah. um, to catch that daylight movement. Now, during the rut, they might be on their feet all day. Yeah. So I'm kind of referring to early season or, or, or a little pre-rut stuff, actually. Yeah. What kind of places do you like to set your cameras up on to, to learn some of this stuff? You know, it, it just... It, just depends. Um, usually a food source is a good source, the edge of a field, catching those deer. And if you can create those little sneaky roads I mentioned earlier or those corridors, um, or you do have a funnel at the end of a lake where they're crossing at the end of a slough, um, a natural corridor. I mean, I try to just put them in places like that, just, just where I think, you know, where deer move for frequent. Yeah, yeah. Mainly food, I guess, is what we all focus on, probably. Okay. So, I feel like uh, I feel like we need to we need to wrap this one up here in a little bit. I don't want to keep you too long, Brad. But I've got I've got a couple more questions here um, that are okay. a little bit a little bit different direction. But if if you were to have like your best hunting buddies sit down here with us, if if you and your best hunting buddies and we are all sitting down here talking about talking about deer. If I were to ask them what it is that Brad does best or, or what makes Brad a successful deer hunter, if you had to guess what your best hunting buddies would say about you, what you think they would point a finger at, what do you think they would point to as your kind of unique superpower or whatever it might be that, that makes it work for you? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. I'm not good at talking about myself. Um, <laughs> this is your buddies that your um, buddies are talking about. You, Brad. <laughs> I don't know if my buddy, they, they would probably say stuff that I couldn't say right here. <laughs> you know how buddies do, right? Yeah. You know, if I you're do. a true buddy, you can say anything to your buddy. Uh-huh. And, uh, uh, yeah, we give each other a hard time, but I guess, I, I guess probably one, uh, one thing that, that, that I'm, probably most proud of is just being able to anticipate anticipation like we've been talking about create that spot scout spend plenty of time scouting after the season february march i'm usually the only one scouting our place in everybody else is tired of hunting that's when i find out probably the most information that i store away for the next year um but i think anticipating being able to to figure out and, and be patient about it is is i think one thing that that helps me the most. Yeah. That seems to be, if there's any one thing I could point to that across 99% of the people I've talked to, you know, talked to some of the, most of the best deer hunters across the entire country over the last four years, almost every one of them can point to that as a key thing they focus on is scouting, 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 really focusing on learning your property, learning these deer. Um, a lot of people prioritize scouting over actually hunting in many cases. Um, yep. So yep. that, that, that doesn't surprise me. That's something that you do well. Now, 
one one motto I have that I that I live by, hunting wise, is I'd rather spend a little time in a good place than a lot of time in a bad place. Yeah. And I always know there's a better place. Yeah. Now I might not be able to go find it this hunting season, but I'm gonna figure it out after the season, and I'm gonna be ready for that the next year. Yeah. Um, that's. So, so you you got to be able to do that, and it doesn't work for everybody based on their time and what they do. And um, you might have to get a little more aggressive, but man, if you can. But hey, w- how much fun is it to? That's what I like about deer so much is it's turned into a year round, almost a year round sport. For mm-hmm. us. Oh and, yeah, and you know, and that's that's what I think that's what all us deer hunters share in common is 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 it is a year round sport. We're thinking about we're finding sheds, we're scouting in February, March. Um, you know, getting our summer stuff ready in May and June and start putting cameras out in July, seeing how big the bucks are going to be this year. <laughs> Who doesn't love that? Yeah. Getting that first buck pictures of the year. I mean, <laughs> it's Christmas morning right there. It is. We're like a bunch of kids. Yep. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's just, it's just love. I'm, I'm like I said, I'm going to my camp, spend next week there on the dozer, um, doing some plots that I figured out last winter that I'm, I, you know, I had to wait so I could create them to, to do some changing of them now. And then we got veg planted and soybeans and we got cameras out on some mineral licks. So yeah, I got a fun week. It's just like, it's much fun. It's like opening a week for me. Yeah. The, in a sense. The process, the projects and the process the, are, are the process, yeah. man, who uh, we love. And I think some of the best hunters I know that you, I mean, they've never, you've never even seen them on TV. None of us have, cause they just, they're just good, hardworking, love to hunt and they're private but their biggest thing is they spend the time figuring stuff out yeah yeah that's... they spend way more time figuring out where that tree is and they do just sitting in that tree mm-hmm. now what about this if we're we're in that same room with your buddies again and i ask them what does brad do that you think is just crazy if there's something you do that's that everyone else thinks is bizarre, but you you say no, man, this works, or I'm gonna do this every year because I just have seen it work, or something like that. But everyone else thinks you're kind of weird because you do it. Is there anything like that that you can think of that they would that they'd call out? Uh, yeah, I don't hunt mornings at all, except during the rut. That's it. Explain that. Because, well, and what I what I think I figured out is what I believe is, you know, you find all these good places. Well, when you walk in there, the deer are going to be mostly on their feet at night, the mature deer. And you walk in there to that spot, so you got this acorn tree or, or whatever you're hunting, or this food plot you created, and you walk in there and you spook them deer out of there. Well, who knows where they're going to end up bedding? They might, they might end up two or 300 yards further away from this spot than they, than they normally would. Well, they're not going to get there till that afternoon to a dark and you I feel like a lot of times I'm changing my afternoon my afternoon chances if I hunt mornings in some good places because the risk of spooking stuff is so much better getting in there before daylight or right at daylight than it is you know at two in the afternoon when everybody's asleep and comfortable mm-hmm. so I just I just stay out of the woods in the mornings until until right time yeah yeah because then everything changes in yeah, 
I've seen I've seen a similar thing too. Early season and late season, it just does. It seems like those morning hunts are low chances of success, high chances of risk of of screwing things up. While those yep. afternoon hunts are low chance of of spooking things when you go in there, but high chances for an opportunity. So the the odds are much more in your favor for those evening hunts. And if you don't screw it up in the morning, it's that much better. That's right. Yep. So, so I just take I take it easy and shoot my bow or go look at a new place or go squirrel hunting if it's early season. I mean, I enjoy squirrel hunting as much as anything. And, you know, um, there's still plenty to do in the outdoors. And, and I just, man, I, I'm, I'm careful, careful, careful with my good spots. Yeah. Yeah. So. Final question. And, and you kind of, you, you already answered this a little bit, so you feel free to go back on your first answer or, or give me something different, but you've spent, time around a lot of great deer hunters some of the very best out there mm-hmm. whether it be the primos crew or other folks with whitetail properties or just friends of ours or friends of yours that we've never heard of but if you were to look at all the very best deer hunters you know and if you could then circle what they all have in common is there anything that you could point to as like this is that core common Maybe it's a habit or an attitude or a tactic that, that they all seem to have in common. What would that be? Well, you know, like we said, anticipation and being able to figure where that deer is going to be um, is, is, is number one. Secondly is patience. You know, another, another thing, and I don't do it, um, but I know guys that, you know, they'll go get in a tree at, at 9 or 10 in the morning and stay there the whole day. And they, and they have those are those are the guys I look up to. They have the patience to sit there, and I, and I have before, and I, I will again. But it's just not something I enjoy the camp life. I'd rather hang around with my family and friends and laugh, and, um, then hunt the afternoon. But but yeah, anticipation and patience. Yeah. But but knowing when 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 to spend those when to use those patience. Don't go sit in the spot thinking you might get lucky. If, if you're, you know, if you're in that spot and the conditions aren't right. Yeah. Like yeah. I said, it goes back to spend a, spend a little time in a good spot and way better than a lot of time in a bad spot. Yeah. That's a, that's a great little reminder just to keep in the back of your head during the season. There's a lot of times where it's easy to, you know, I think something that I've been guilty of in the past. And I think a lot of other people have, have talked about where you, you can sometimes get comfortable where, oh, well, I've already got mm-hmm. a stand here. I don't really want to tear down this stand or, or go grab a new stand and hang it up in a new spot. Or I don't really want, it'd be kind of inconvenient to have to go walk around to find this new area or to maybe I saw a mature buck moving a couple times over 300 yards away. But to your point, just always remind yourself a little bit of time in the best spot in the right spot is so much more valuable than being comfortable and, and lazy in the spot that's already set up, but not as good. <laughs> yep. And I always have a, you know, if you have a, a ground blind and a climbing stand, and obviously we have our regular hang-on sets, if you have those, it's pretty much not much scenario a scenario you can't figure out. But I love a climbing stand for what you just said. You know, so you got your spot set up and based on your scouting efforts, and you were a little bit off, a little wrong, and or the deer are not where I thought they'd be there, 100 yards over there. Well, I, I'll try that if the conditions are right, but I'll take a climber in there. You know, early afternoon, one or two o'clock, ease in there, climb a tree and, and see how that goes. But what I also believe that I never do is leave a climber in there overnight because you've been touching it, you've been sitting on it, and you might as well just leave your shirt hanging there. So I always take that climber back off the tree and ease out of there. 
Mm. That, and, and, you know, I found good spots that way. And then you, you, you just learn year after year where you need to, to kind of refocus. But, yeah, climbers are good. Just don't leave them in there overnight if, if you're in a hot spot. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you see a lot of guys who will just leave them connected at the bottom of the tree if they're going to go back in there. Mm-hmm. But to your point, that's mm-hmm. uh, just a huge scent bomb probably. <laughs> it is just sitting there. You might as well just sit there all night. Yeah. <laughs> Man, well, uh, Brett, I really, I've really enjoyed this. I appreciate you taking the time to to talk through all these different ideas and and stories and everything. And uh, if people, if people want to see what you've got going on with Primos, or if they want to learn more about what you're doing with Whitetail Properties or anything like that, you know, where can they find that stuff online? Well, you, of course, the Primos. You got the uh, Primos dot com is where they, you know, where they have all the Primos stuff, and they we do a lot of stuff on on Primos on the YouTube on the YouTube channel they have too, as far as tips and tactics and basically a lot of the same stuff all us guys do about what you and I've been discussing today. And then, you know, as far as whitetail properties goes, if you go to whitetailproperties.com and um, go to my page, you can see all the listings that, that I have there. And we have, we have a lot of good stuff on with all things to do with land on there too, with our land beat series on people can learn a lot of the same things we've been discussing. They, the, the, video team there whitetail properties has created some great short clips on <clears throat> how to do land stuff like you know hinge cutting and all that management practices yeah yeah i've so. been i've been following that video series and they're definitely doing a good job and, and same with primos mm-hmm. i've really enjoyed the youtube channel that you guys have been putting together <clears throat> there and a lot of quality stuff so highly recommend people mm-hmm. checking out both of those well thank you well it's um definitely been a fun time visiting with you and kind of got me thinking man i'm I'm that much more ready to go go check out some of my, my stuff I'm, I'm looking forward to next week. Yeah, yeah, me too. I think uh, I think as soon as we get off the line here, I'm going to head out and uh, do some spraying of food plots, hang a couple cameras, and uh, just get right to it. Well, nice, nice. Well, well, good deal. We'll be safe out there, and I hope you have a, a wonderful and successful fall. Yeah, same to you, Brad. Thanks so much. And that is it for today's episode. So, just my usual reminder, if you haven't left a rating or review for the podcast on iTunes, would appreciate that. Make sure you're subscribed there as well. Also, make sure you subscribe to our YouTube channel and follow me on the Wired to Hunt Instagram account. A lot of fun stuff coming up uh, in September once my hunting season kicks off. So check that out. And most importantly, just want to thank you all for being here. Thanks for listening. Thanks for sharing this uh, this time with me today. Maybe you were on the treadmill or driving to work or at work, whatever it might be. We appreciate you tuning in. So until next time, thanks and stay wired to hunt. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank, 
hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. 